0: I want to talk to you this morning about spiritual slippage, spiritual slippage. One of the saddest stories I know in the Bible, it's found in 1 Kings 11, you don't need to turn to it, but it's about King Solomon, the one that had been so blessed and graced by God with wisdom and opportunities and blessings, and it's a story about the end of his life says, King Solomon, however, loved many foreign women besides Pharaoh's daughter. And they were from nations about which the Lord had told the Israelites, you must not intermarry with them because they will surely turn your hearts after other gods. Nevertheless, Solomon held fast to them in love. He had 700 wives of royal birth and 300 concubines, and most of us say, how did he do it? And his wives, his wives led him astray. As Solomon grew old, his wives turned his heart after other gods, and his heart was not fully devoted to the Lord his God, as the heart of David his father had been. goes on and talks about some of the gods he followed. So Solomon did evil in the eyes of the Lord. Evil? What is evil? He did not follow the Lord completely as David, his father, had done, talked about some of his practices. And then verse 9 gets my attention. The Lord became angry with Solomon after all he'd done for Solomon because his heart turned away from the Lord, the God of Israel, who had appeared to him twice. Although he had forbidden Solomon to follow other gods, Solomon did not keep the Lord's command. So the Lord said to Solomon, since this is your attitude and you have not kept my covenant and my decrees, which I commanded you, I will most certainly tear the kingdom away from you and give it to one of your subordinates. Spiritual slippage. That's not how Solomon started. Solomon started with a heart for the Lord. Solomon started with a desire to follow him wholeheartedly and over time, he allowed things to creep into his life and he gave his heart away to other things so that by the end of his life, he had lost his full devotion to the Lord. It can happen to Solomon. It can happen to you and me. It can happen. And you know, the question is, is when it does happen, what's God's response? Does he care? The Bible shows us here especially when he's been so gracious to us to help guide our lives that when we stubbornly hold fast to that kind of attitude it makes him angry and i for one am so glad it does i'm so glad that god cares even when i don't i'm so glad that god is a god who gets angry at spiritual slippage in our lives and that's the only way you and I are gonna be able to understand the anger that we see in Jesus in this passage this week that we come to in John chapter two. And if you're following along in the notes, I hope this is what you'll see this morning, is that the Bible teaches that Jesus is the lamb. We saw that when Steve was talking about John the Baptist. Behold, the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. He's the sacrificial lamb who, who took our place, and he's also the lion. He's the lamb and the lion. Some of us go, I want the lamb, I don't want the lion. And you know what the truth is? A lot of times, if we're not careful, we shape God into our own image, where we basically say, I want the lamb, but not the lion. We so try and tame Jesus. We so try and make him into a God of our own making, and that's where we gotta be careful. And Jesus will not be tamed. Jesus has an authority in our lives that he will exercise at different times if we stubbornly refuse to deal with spiritual slippage in our lives. And so this passage is going to talk about some of that. Now, out to the right, I accidentally listed the reference for Revelation 4 there. It should be Revelation 5, verse 4 and 6, 4 through 6. Do you mind correcting that for me so I'll sleep better this week? Revelation 5, 4 through 6. And here's what it says here on the screen. I wept. This is John, by the way. This is John many years later when he is allowed to see the revelation. He's caught up to heaven in this vision. And here's what he says. I wept and wept because no one was found who was worthy to open the scroll or to look inside. Then one of the elders said to me, do not weep. See, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has triumphed. Who's he talking about, friends? Jesus, the Messiah, he is able to open the scroll and its seven seals. And then he says this, then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing in the center of the throne and encircled by the four living creatures and the elders. The lamb is the lion of the tribe of Judah. He's both. And so as we study Jesus this week, one of the things we're going to notice is last week we saw that Jesus can have fun at a party. When he was at a wedding banquet, he actually made it better. He loves times of joy. He loves being with people. He's not a killjoy. But there are some things that absolutely set him on tilt. And those things are what we need to learn about this morning And we need to be careful that we do not seek a Jesus who is not who Jesus is. And this passage will help us in a lot of ways. But some of us are nervous because we go, man, if he gets angry, I grew up in a home where my parents got angry, they had a short fuse and they backhanded me at different times. I didn't even see it coming sometimes. Is that the kind of anger Jesus has? No, friends. His anger is not like fallen human anger. But we're gonna see that when he came on the scene his anger had a purity about it it had a red hotness about it that could cleanse and that's really where we're going this morning we're going to talk about cleansing this passage in some of your bibles if you look at the subheading it usually says cleansing the temple clearing the temple and that's what we're going to take time to do today is we're going to think about lord how did you not only cleanse that temple that day but how can you cleanse my life this day and so in just a moment we're going to look at john 2 in fact i'll invite you To uh, open it up right now to John chapter 2. If you didn't bring a Bible, we'd love for you to follow along in a Bible so there's red ones there nearby. I'm told that it's found somewhere between page 700 and 800 in John chapter 2. The Gospels are about three-fourths or four-fifths of the way back in the Bible if you're searching for it. John chapter 2, verses 12 through 25, as we continue this series called Encountering Christ. And again, I just invite you to keep paying attention to the banners as they change each week week. But this idea of encountering Christ today is we're going to see him cleansing the temple. And what I want you to see about this event, how important it is, not only in this moment of his ministry, but in the rest of his life, if you're following along, is notice this. At his trial, Jesus' words are twisted against him. At his trial, the words that Jesus is going to say in this encounter are going to actually be thrown back at him in his trial. Not accurately, not correctly, but they will be twisted. In other words, what I'm saying is, this event made people so ticked off at Jesus that they would look for a way to throw him back in his face. Not only at his trial, but on his cross. If you read Matthew 27, I was doing that this week. People are shouting at him. You said, you know destroy the temple and raise it in three days, nah, 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 and they were just mocking him, throwing these things back in his face. Then later, his early followers, people used these same things against him falsely. So this is dangerous stuff we're talking about, friends. This is penetrating stuff we're talking about, and we need the Lord to be our teacher because sometimes we just want to shield ourselves from this. But Jesus says if you'll let me, I want to teach you something that can happen on the other side of cleansing. So let's pray and then we're going to look at John 2. We'll move our way through the story and then talk about how it applies to our lives, okay? Lord Jesus, help us worship you as the lamb and the lion. Help us to Pay attention to any spiritual slippage or irreverence or carelessness in our relationship with you. I pray that we will honor you today by the way we listen and think about these things. But most of all, we pray you would guide all of that where we would be conscious that something bigger than ourselves is going on. And Lord, may you get the glory. May we know without question it's you. In your name we pray, amen. Now, if you're following along the notes, what I want you to see is that as we look at this temple encounter, um, this first line, if you're following along, let me just uh, give it to you, and then we'll read some of the verses in John chapter 2. First, just before Passover, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. So just before Passover, Jesus goes up to Jerusalem. Some of you have been to the Holy Land, and you've told me that one of the things that's unmistakable is that Jerusalem is on a hill. Therefore, you always have to make your way up to Jerusalem. In fact, some of the psalms, I believe it's Psalm 113 through Psalm 118, are called the psalm of ascents. And the idea is that you you sang those songs as you made your way up to the temple in Jerusalem, as you ascended. So Jesus makes his way up to Jerusalem, and it's the Passover time, one of the three major festivals or feasts in the Jewish, Jewish practice. Excuse me, I said Judas. Jewish practice, okay? Now, again, let me read these verses. Verse 12 basically tells us what happened after the wedding, how he went back down to Capernaum for a few days, and then verse 13, when it was almost time for the Jewish Passover, Jesus went up to Jerusalem. Now, let me say something about the Passover. Out to the right in your notes, I've listed Exodus 12 verses 1 through 20. Some of you know this Bible story. Some of you, you've never read it before. That's okay. What happened is, is that when God led the Israelites out of captivity in Egypt with his mighty hand, after years of slavery, the night before that happened, he started this festival called Passover. He asked every home to take an innocent lamb, an unblemished lamb, to slaughter it and to take the blood and place it over the doorpost and the sidepost of their house, so that when the death angel came through Egypt that night, killing the firstborn of everyone who did not have blood over the door, which would have been all the Egyptians, that they would be spared, all because of the blood of an innocent lamb. And then, the Bible says, God said, when I see the blood, I will pass over. This was foreshadowing that Jesus shed blood on the cross could also be over the doors of our lives, and that we would know not only Freedom from the death angel, but also so much more. But there was another thing that went with Passover, if you read that passage sometime on your own. And that is, is that part of Passover was getting rid of all the yeast for seven days. They were to eat unleavened bread, which was without yeast. And some of you have seen what yeast does. It has a way of infecting and getting through the whole thing. And and sometimes the Bible refers to yeast in a positive way, but most of the time, yeast is referred to as a picture of sin how it's just something little, but it can spread so far. And so Jesus enters this city. As he goes up to Jerusalem, he enters a city where they're not only preparing lambs, but they're also removing yeast from their house in preparation. The irony of it all is that in God's house, there's stuff that has not been cleaned out. It's not being prepared for God, and Jesus sees that. So if you're following along, notice what he finds he finds chaos and corruption inside the temple he finds chaos and corruption inside i circled the word inside in my notes and basically let me read verse 14 it says in the temple courts he found men selling cattle sheep and doves and others sitting at tables exchanging money now i need to explain this some of you know that the temple wasn't just one room, one building. It was a temple complex, a, a series of courts. And the outermost court was the court of the Gentiles, which was for people that, although they weren't Jewish, may be God-fearers, God-seekers. And so those people would come, and they could bring their sacrifices and draw near to God. That's the farthest they could go, but they at least draw, they drew near like that. Well, Most scholars believe that where this action was going on was in the court of the Gentiles. Now try and imagine this. Try and imagine something way, like a barnyard out of control, okay? We're talking cattle, sheep, doves. The sounds alone would have been absolutely noisy, the smell would have been unmistakable, and then just trying to make your way through would have been fascinating. Jesus sees all this. And I want to explain that this actually had a legitimate, legitimate purpose in the beginning. You see, first of all, people were traveling from all over the world for Passover. Most historians estimate that two to three million people packed into this small little city every year for Passover. So when they came, they were supposed to bring an animal sacrifice as part of their worship. Therefore, to carry all that stuff and to try and deal with all that to come that way, they needed to be able to find a better way. So they offered these animals that you could purchase near the temple so that you could go to you know the temple with that. But what had happened is, is it had become a racket. They had started having inspectors that said, no, your animal isn't unblemished enough, even though it might be. Why? So you had to buy one from them and then they'd mark up the price way out of sight. Then also, you had to bring a temple tax. Every man over 20 years old had to pay a half shekel temple tax. Well, they couldn't take just foreign money, so they had to exchange it so that it would be a godly currency in the eyes of the temple. And so again, they'd charge a fee for that. Can you see what's going on? By the time these guys got into the temple, they were so ticked off at being used and abused by the, they should have been, that they couldn't even like pray. And then if they wanted to pray, it was so noisy and so loud, there was no way because their court had been taken over by this racket. See, at one point it had been outside the temple, now it had moved inside. This happens so subtly sometimes. We allow things to creep in, but that's what had happened, and Jesus saw this. And what bothered him most is that no one seemed to be upset about this. No one said, we need to call a meeting. Something's seriously wrong with the temple of God. No one seemed to be. Everybody's busy cleaning out their own houses, but no one's cleaning out the house of God. It just makes them tick. So if you're following along, with words and a whip, he drives all from the temple. With words and a whip, he drives all. Now that's fascinating. Animals and people. You want to talk about clearing things out. I'd say that pretty much took care of it. He drives it all. Let me read verse 15. So he made a whip out of cords and drove all from the temple area, both sheep and cattle. He scattered the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. To those who sold doves, he said, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house into a market his disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. I want you to imagine this with me for a minute. He sees all this. He's just one guy. Hundreds, hundreds, probably even thousands of people are in this temple complex. And he goes, that's it. And he goes and he probably takes some cords that were used for the animals and he begins to form a whip. He puts them together, and people go like, like, isn't this like over the top? Well, how many of you have ever stood next to an animal and all they did was look at you? <laughs> Sometimes, again, I'm not talking about harming them, I'm talking about just stinging them a little bit, getting the momentum going, as well as making sure that everyone knows that's it. It's time to get the message. He began to do that. And so he began to just, yeah, and he just began to shake this. You can picture this. And he just began moving them. And he just began moving and driving and talking the whole time. And everyone could tell, this guy's amped up. And then on top of that, he not only did that, but he said to those that had the doves, get these out of here. How dare you turn my father's house. Notice he says, my father's house, not our. My father's house into a market." and he just flipped the coin. He said, that's it. That's it. This stuff cannot happen anymore. Something's wrong with this. This is serious slippage. Doesn't anybody care? And I'm telling you, it was was a moment the disciples never forgot the rest of their life, but neither did his enemies. Now, wouldn't it be cool If when he did that, a whole bunch of people said, you're right, Jesus. We let all this stuff go on. This is dead wrong. But I want you to see next, if you're following along in the notes, what happened. With no contrition, they demand a sign from Jesus. With no contrition, no brokenness, no humility, They demand a sign from Jesus. You notice what it says there? In verse 18, then the Jews demanded of him, what miraculous sign can you show us to prove your authority to do all this? Translate it, what right do you have to do what you just did? You better show us a good one. You better prove that you have the authority to do this. Notice they don't go, it doesn't matter if you have the authority to do it. Somebody needed to do it. We're so sorry. God, that we have allowed this to happen. Now, when you're thinking about this, I just want to just stop for a second and read this to you. This helped me a lot. Ray Steadman said this, because sometimes when we talk about anger, I've seen people use this passage to say, righteous anger, my righteous anger is good. The Bible says be very careful about anger. It is tricky, it can usually turn destructive. But notice what this is about Jesus' anger. He didn't deprive anyone of their property, His animals, the animals he drove out could easily be collected again. The money he poured out on the temple floor could be gathered up and recounted. He didn't open the cages of the birds and let them loose, but ordered them taken away. He didn't destroy, but he made a point. Don't turn God's house into a flea market. Don't use religion to make a fast buck. But they didn't get it. They didn't get the point. What right do you have to do this, Jesus? And Jesus says some words that are absolutely world-shaking. Verse 19, Jesus answered them, Destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. The Jews replied, It has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you're going to raise it? in three days, and they're referring to how King Herod had this unbelievable building project going on. They were right. It had already been 46 years, and it would be over 20 more before they were completed. That's how ornate and complex, and the craftsmanship of this place, it was fantastic. And Jesus says, destroy this temple, and I will raise it again in three days. They're going, what? You really got a gift, because it's taken 46 years. And then Verse 21 tells us what he meant, and it's in that second gray box in the notes. Would you read it out loud with me, please, together? But the temple he had spoken of was his body. Now, if you're following along in the notes, Jesus speaks of a new and better temple, his body. What he's predicting here is a couple things. First of all, he's saying, you will destroy this temple, my body. You will see to it that I am crucified. But I want you to know that won't be the end of the story because I am greater than the temple. Matthew 12, 6 says, I've referenced it out to the right. He is saying a new and better temple is what God has in store. I know some of you are concerned whether or not the temple will be rebuilt in Jerusalem. I believe the temple has already come in Jesus Christ and it is being built his body and that's why they were so thrown because all they could think of was literal and physical oh my goodness Jesus was saying God's got a bigger plan than that it's his body that's gonna be raised again and my question to you this morning is what is his body today after he died and rose again three days later and then ascended into heaven to sit at the right hand of God the Father does he still have a body on earth today Does he still, does God still have a temple here on earth? Absolutely he does. It's the people of God who have put their trust in Jesus Christ, who are now the body of Christ. That's what the Bible says, and who are the temple of God. And so, what I want us to see with the time that we have left is, what kind of temple are we? What kind of body of Christ are we here on earth today? And what I want us to see is this incredible idea that Jesus has zeal. He has passion for this. And so would you read with me that first gray box, verse 17, let's all read it together. His disciples remembered that it is written, zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. Will you say that with me a couple times? I hope we remember this. Zeal for your house will consume me. Zeal for your house will consume me. What's zeal? Sometimes we've all seen zeal like in a really twisted, ridiculous way. What is it? In a genuine way. If you're following along, zeal is passion. It's passion. It's feelings of great warmth and intensity. Feelings of great warmth and intensity. Friends, I read this week, someone says, oh, how we as Christians have been so tamed. We take pride in not being moved by anything deeply. And we're so reasonable. But friends, there are times that we need to be more passionate about the things that Jesus is passionate about. And what is he passionate about? He's passionate about his church being alive and powerful in the world. I'm not talking politically now. I'm talking about living the life of Jesus in our world and being the people, people that aren't like the world in our lifestyles so much as distinctive lifestyles, and yet still care about the world, people in the world. And so this morning, if you're following along, by faith in Christ, we're now his body. And he wants us to live with this kind of zeal. In fact, look at Romans 12:11. I listed it out there in the notes. You can look it up later, but it says this never be lacking in zeal but keep your spiritual fervor your spiritual fire serving the lord but how many of us would have to admit i lack in zeal a lot of times or i lack in zeal still way too often my spiritual fervor drops it goes up and down it's hot and cold i know how that goes but this call is no Don't let slippage go unaddressed. It's not that slippage can't happen, but when it does happen, what's our attitude? Solomon's attitude was, oh well, care less. He was not zealous or jealous for God's honor and glory in his life. And when he lost that, he lost irreverence, and he lost the spiritual power and dynamic in his life. And you and I will too. And we now, if you are a follower of Christ, if you put your trust in Christ, you are now part of the body of Christ. This Wednesday night when we were teaching, we came across this verse in 1 Corinthians twelve twenty-seven. the class Steve and I were teaching. I thought about this. Would you read it with me? Now you are the body of Christ and each one of you is a part of it. And this idea is that he has made us part of something that's absolutely important in his purpose in the world. This is not so much about going to church, this is about being the church, the way Jesus always dreamed of it. And also, if you've never seen it, 1 Corinthians 3, look at this one. It says, don't you know that you yourselves are God's temple and that God's spirit lives in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is sacred and you are that temple saying don't you know don't you care aren't you passionate about this because this is what jesus is passionate about this is what god is passionate about notice it brings us to this question are we allowing any carelessness in his temple are we allowing any carelessness any slippage in his temple are we allowing that have we gotten to the place where we just go well I'm this far gone, I might as well, it's too late now. Is there any kind of spirit like that this morning as we hear this passage, as we encounter Christ the lion, not just Christ the lamb? What is he saying to us? And so today, this morning, what we want to do is we want to take some time as a church family to just let Jesus cleanse us, to let Jesus cleanse, do some things, to clear out some things, to get us to the place again where we are fully devoted. You know, because here's, here's what happens when slippage is going on. 95% devotion seems pretty good. But when you and I are declaring war on shallow Christianity, here's how we think. 95% devotion is 5% short. Jesus wants all of us. He gave all of himself. He wants all of us. That's what he wants. And he wants every room in our life to belong to him like the song said. We, um, I don't know if you've ever heard of this booklet before called My Heart, Christ Home. My dad shared it with me when I was a teenager. I've never forgotten it. and We actually bought a whole bunch of copies and we'll have them at the back in baskets, one per household. But it's a story, it's a parable that was written years ago by a pastor named Robert Boyd Munger. And when he talks about my heart Christ home, he tells this parable about how when he invited Jesus to come into his life, he began to understand that his life was like a house. And that when Jesus came in, he began to help him look at every room in his house differently. So it started with a study and talked to him about his thought life and what he thought about and what was on his mind and what he filled his mind with. And then he talked about the dining room and talked about his appetites, his desires, what he's hungry for in life. And he talked about the living room and whether or not he was making time each day to really spend time with Jesus, listening to his words, talking to him about everything, looking at his day with Jesus. And then he talks about the workroom where he looked at his gifts and abilities and Learned that he could actually throw those into the ring and they could become things that God used in service to him instead of just serving himself. Then he talked about the rec room, which nowadays we might call the media room or the entertainment room or whatever, and talked about the things he did in his free time, what entertained him, what pursuits he had in his recreational time. Then he talked about the bedroom and whether or not there was a purity with his sexuality and his dating life, his marriage family relationships, those kinds of things, whatever, again, relationship might relate to you. The whole closet, though, is what I want to talk to you about before we spend some time talking to Jesus. I've never forgotten this part of the booklet. Here's what he writes. There's one more matter of crucial consequence I would like to share with you. One day, I found Jesus waiting for me at the front door. An arresting look was in his eye. As I entered, he said to me, there's a peculiar odor in the house. Something must be dead around here. It's upstairs, I think it's in the hall closet. As soon as he said this, I knew what he was talking about. Friends, this is the skill of Jesus. This is how well he knows us. Indeed, there was a small closet up there on the hall landing just a few feet square. In that closet behind lock and key, I had one or two little personal things I did not want anyone to know about. Certainly, I did not want Christ to see them. They were dead and rotting things left over from the old life. Not wicked, but not right and good to have in a Christian life. Yet I loved them. I wanted them so much for myself that I was really afraid to admit they were there. Reluctantly, I went up to the stairs with him. and As we mounted, the odor became stronger and stronger. He pointed at the door and said, it's in there. That dead thing is in there. It made me angry. That's the only way I can put it. I had given him access to the study, the dining room, the living room, the workroom, the rec room, the bedroom, and now he was asking me about a little two-by-four closet. I said to myself, this is too much. I'm not going to give him the key. Well, he responded, reading my thoughts, if you think I'm going to stay up here on the second floor with this smell, you're mistaken. I'll take my bed out on the back porch or somewhere else. I'm certainly not going to stay around that. And I saw him start down the stairs. When you have come to know and love Jesus Christ. One of the worst things that can happen is to sense him withdrawing his face and fellowship. I had to give in. I'll give you the key, I said sadly, but you'll have to open the closet and clean it out. I haven't the strength to do it. I know, he said, I know you haven't. Just give me the key. Just authorize me to handle the closet and I will. So with trembling fingers, I passed the key over to him. He took it from my hand, walked over to the door, opened it, entered it, and took out the putrefying stuff that was rotting there and threw it all away. And then he cleansed the closet, painted it, and fixed it up all in a moment's time. Immediately, a fresh, fragrant breeze swept through the house. The whole atmosphere changed. What release and victory to have that dead thing out of my life. No matter what sin or what pain there might be in my past, Jesus is ready to forgive, to heal, and to make it whole. You know, the Bible says is that we are to cooperate with God in the cleansing process. There are things we are to do to cleanse ourselves, and there are things that only he can do to cleanse us, but we need both. And some of you have asked me what Ethiopia did to me. And I mentioned in the bulletin that we're going to talk about it more this afternoon at 1.30. But let me just tell you one thing that it did to my life on one of the days that I was teaching on the ministry of the Holy Spirit, who comes to bring God's holiness in our lives. I got done and we had talked about being led by the Holy Spirit and I invited the pastors to bow their heads there in that little church and just offered them a time that if they wanted to, just to freshly confess and ask the Lord to search them if there was anything that had begun to slip in their life. And then they began to pray. And while they were praying, the Lord showed me while I was praying a couple of things that were like the whole closet in my life. And I asked him to cleanse me. And in that moment, I had the sense that he was wanting to do more in my life and I was letting him do. But he was waiting for me to give him all, including the hall closet, no holdouts. But even though I've walked with the Lord for 35 years and needed him to cleanse me in the past, I'll need him to cleanse me again. But that day, something happened there in Ethiopia as I prayed. And I found myself more hungry to be fully God since I've gotten back. I know it won't be something that will last the rest of my life. It'll be, need to be renewed. But Jesus has come to cleanse. And he's come to cleanse because have you ever had a garage that was so packed you couldn't even park it in anymore? And then you cleaned it out, swept it out, and you pulled back in your garage. Wow, there's a lot of room in this garage. It's the same way when Jesus cleansed. There's room. There's freedom, there is joy, there is life waiting on the other side of obedience. And so I want to just ask you, if you would, to follow in the notes the last line there, and then don't put your notes away because we're not done, okay? Do I want the cleansing and purpose only Jesus can bring? I can't answer that question for you, friends. I can only answer it for me. But do you want it? Do you want his cleansing? Or will you say, what right do you have to do that? And here's what Jesus was saying that moment. I have the right because I laid my life down on the cross as the only proper payment for your sin. If you will trust in me, I have the authority not only to forgive and cleanse you, but I am now Lord of Lords king of kings you will stand before me one day and give an account for how you responded to what i did for you my oh my he has the authority and we need to worship him for that so if you would turn your notes over on the back side there and what i want you just to see is that we have kind of a a house layout there and there's one thing just like the front of the notes i need to ask you to help me with would you you notice the living room there by the fireplace there's one room we left out of this plan that we need to just have, and it's the study. So just below the fireplace there, would you just draw a, a narrow little rectangle and use the word study? And in parentheses, that's supposed to have the word mind or our thoughts. And then the living room, if you can cross out mind there and just put daily time with Jesus in, in parentheses below the living room then you'll see, again, some of the things that might just help as we reflect now on what Jesus might want to do in our lives. Let me just walk through this quickly. In the rec room there at the top, are, are there any things that, again, you're doing your free time that Jesus has just said, that's, just, that's destructive, or that, that's, that's just muddying up your life? And I want you to, want you to cleanse that, or I want to cleanse that. Is there something in the dining room there? Are there certain appetites and desires? There's nothing wrong with desires, friends. It's sinful desires that he wants us to be careful about. Notice, he enjoyed being at the wedding. There's nothing wrong with that. But we can turn those things into idols. We can make alcohol our God. We can make food our God. We can make money our God, the desire for those things. The living room. Is your time with Jesus, do you even have it? Or if you do, has it just become something so stale So rote that you're not even conscious that it's with him. The study. Is there something in your thought life that he wants to cleanse, a pattern or something you feed your mind with? The bedroom, are there relationships that are inappropriate or that need to be repaired or treasured more? In the workroom, have you ever offered your gifts and abilities to the Lord for his service and his kingdom? And last, is there is there a hall closet? Is there something he wants to put his finger on? Not to destroy you, but to free you. The two questions I list at the bottom are these. Have I ever offered every room of my life to the Lord? Some of you came today and you've been investigating Jesus, but you've never believed in him. You've never trusted and obeyed him. Today could be the day. If so, is there one or more rooms the Lord needs to clear out and cleanse so I can be fully his? We want to just, as the music's playing in the background, just you can look at that sheet, but just let this be a time of cleansing. Years ago, a lady wrote on one of our cards, could we have time once in a while in our services for confession? She understood the power of staying short accounts with God, letting him cleanse us of stuff that either has accumulated or that we've just gone unaddressed in our lives. Can you imagine what would happen in our church family if each one of us take this seriously? What kind of church would it be? Every one of us matters. And so take the time to listen to Jesus now, whatever he might say to you, but think about where you're at with Jesus. If there are certain things, just confess them to the Lord. Ask him to cleanse you, but name them, forsake them. We started the service today by singing about the greatness of our God. And when people saw the greatness of Jesus that day in the temple, they also saw themselves. Some responded, some did not. In a way that was God-honoring. But you and I have the same opportunity. The Bible tells us that when Isaiah saw the Lord high and lifted up, you know what his reaction was? woe is me, I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell among a people of unclean lips and all he could be aware of was slippage, things that needed to be cleansed. The Bible says that an angel flew over and took a coal from the altar and touched his lips and cleansed him. And then he heard God say, who will go for us? And he said, here am I, send me. You've cleansed me for an important purpose. I want to serve it. I don't want to stay uncleansed. So now we have a chance to sing to Jesus, and let's just pray that he continues his cleansing work in our church as we worship him.